building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. And now, here's today's show. Thanks for having me jump on. I'm Brian, the producer, and we're on your podcast. We were just uh, mouthing Iron Maiden tunes because we just found out we were both huge Iron Maiden fans in high school. The analogy that you gave a couple episodes ago was that it's okay that we started off in concert t-shirts with, you know, uh, oily hair and uh, pimples and ripped jeans because it gave us a place to start to go in the right direction. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Hey, today uh, I'm jumping on because um, we're entering into the second year of On the Edge, and it gives a lot of our base, a lot of the listeners that are starting to join us every week to learn a little bit about you. Is that cool? Yeah. Um, You grew up in Oregon, and it sounded idyllic. It sounded like a a nice middle-class childhood. You had a mom, a dad, two brothers, and a sister, right? Yeah, I mean, I was six, seven years old. I'd be out until 10 or 11 o'clock at night because uh, we lived in the woods and catching salamanders and tree frogs and crawdads and making little forts and pretending I was Huckleberry Finn. So it was a pretty – my dad had just been shot on the LAPD and retired us up to Oregon. And, uh, yeah, it was one of those – we didn't have much money, but we didn't know any better. Very, very key point you just mentioned. There's a history here with Los Angeles and the LAPD. Your your dad was a, a cop, and uh, there were some other family. My uncle, my great uncle. It was a family, you know, family tradition. Yeah. There's a, a lineage, and and your your family's connected to legendary uh, LAPD chief Daryl Gates, right? Yeah, and uh, Bob Vernon, and uh, Bob Vernon was a really well known uh, assistant chief, and he was a very well known Christian. And my uncle was sort of the other Christian. He would so the the two guys were really well known throughout the LAPD as the Christian leaders of the whole nine thousand person department. Yeah. Nine thousand person department, uh, Los Angeles, uh, a bit of a, a war zone. Compton, the front lines. We're going to get into that. Uh, when did you first come to know Christ? Five years old. My dad um, walked down the aisle of Tri City Baptist Temple. Right after we'd moved to Oregon, and I ran up behind him and got saved. And I was really saved at five. I would like, literally, I would put on my little clip-on tie and my white patent leather shoes, and I would go knock on doors every Saturday with my pop and hand out tracts and tell people about Jesus. And when I was six, my mom started freaking out. So it would have been 1973. In the Portland airport, she saw Ricky Nelson go walking by, and she said he was a famous rock star. So I chased him down. And I witnessed to him about Jesus for like five minutes. And he stood there graciously listening to the six-year-old tell him that he was a sinner and he needed God's grace. (laughs) Then I handed him a tract and off he went. (laughs) (laughs) Little Kenny with his clip-on tie and his patent leather shoes. My crew cut. So let's jump ahead just a few years. Um, I recently learned on one of the episodes of your podcast, On the Edge, that you uh, came across uh, Andrew and Kevin Palau, and you guys were teenagers. We were kids. No, we were like eight. And uh, so this guy came to speak at our church, and uh, it was uh, Luis Palau. And then after Luis Palau spoke, um, I was out playing with some kid and getting, you know, getting uh, grass stains all over my tough skins and my mom started screaming at us. We both got in trouble and it turned out it was, it was Andrew Palau. 
And so here we wow. were 45 years later, uh, you know, we're both Christian leaders and we're interviewing each other. It was a Facebook live, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's cool. So, uh, growing up in Oregon, uh, playing in the woods till 10 o'clock at night, good family. But, uh, then, uh, your dad once said something about, uh, education and higher education and white collar careers. He said, son, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, uh, you only go to college if you're going to score touchdowns. That's right. What do you mean by that? Well, my dad was a, uh, a contending uh, professional boxer. So he was a middleweight golden gloves champion of Cleveland. And, uh, both my brothers were unbelievable athletes. One was an all American basketball player. One was a two time all state running back. And then there was me. <laughs> so I wasn't going to get anywhere by scoring touchdowns. Uh, you know, I, I had a college basketball scholarship to George Fox college, NAI, you know, mm-hmm. uh, small college. So, you know, education wasn't something that was valued in our house at all. Um, but the Lord had different plans for me. You know? So when I went to the LAPD, I wasn't, I didn't even have my college degree yet, but God used that later. So your young adulthood has some sort of serendipity to it. Uh, you, you, it sounds like you wanted to be a tough guy maybe, and you were looking at the Marines and the Navy and the military, and uh, there was a fork in the road. And how old were you when you hit your first fork? Oh gosh, I was... 19. Okay. So I got, went in the Marine Corps OCS, um, graduated from OCS, uh, to be a pilot and the Navy picked me up. It's a longer story. I talked to Andrew only North about it. Cause I was like, I never really completely understood. Somehow the Navy grabbed me from the Marine Corps and the Navy went to put me into flight school. And I wanted to be on the LAPD, like my dad, my uncle, my great uncle. So then my mom said, well, what, who are you going to choose? Cause there was both were happening at the same time, Naval flight school and the LAPD was doing my background. And I said, well, whoever calls me first. So the LAPD called and said, you've got eight days to be at the police Academy. And I didn't even have a car. So I scraped together five grand, bought a used Oldsmobile, jumped in the car that day and drove to Los Angeles. And the next day the Navy called my mother and said, okay, he's got his appointment to Naval flight school. And she said, sorry, he, he took off. He's going to go be a cop. And they said, what? I mean, nobody turns down Navy flight school. And she said, well, my son's that stupid. So <laughs> you could have been goose, man. I could have been. Yeah, I feel the need for speed. now. <laughs> so what happened? What, what, what did you, you're in this car. Mom calls. Oh, we don't have cell phones. You get to LA, I got to you LA. check in with mom. And she's like, the Navy called. Are you sure you made the right decision? And I said, yeah, well, I said, whoever called me first. So I go to the police academy at, at that time now, seven days later, and, and that was it. The rest was history. Wow. The rest was Rodney King and Crips and Bloods and all that. So Los Angeles, um, you kind of got, got galvanized, as I understand it. You had some armor put on you. Um, you're living in Orange County. Uh, you, you have a, uh, you've told no, this was, story. I was living in Redondo beach, man. I'm oh, you, okay. Yeah. So you're living in Redondo beach and you'd go in and, um, you had, uh, you were assigned, uh, you and I have talked about this. Um, the way LAPD rolls, it's two, it's two officers in a car. Right. So did you, you've talked a lot on this podcast and with promise keepers about friends and buddies that you can trust. Did you have a buddy and did you have a mentor? At LAPD? I did not have a mentor. I really looked up to my uncle. 
mm-hmm. uh, who was still a captain okay. at that time. Um, but yeah, very, very close friends. Cause that's the thing about men when you're in a situation where your life literally counts on your partner, the, that will drive you guys really close. And, uh, I remember when I said I was leaving the LAPD, a bunch of those guys broke into tears. I mean, it was that you're, so you're that close when you're cops together. You're, I mean, the amount of stuff you go through together, the amount of stuff that you see, um, you just can't explain that to anybody who hasn't been a cop in that kind of a situation, that massive high crime, high violence, taking bullets together uh, in foot pursuits where either one of you could die at any moment. It's a. So now you're, you're in your early 20s yeah. and you're wearing the badge and uh, you're, you're rolling in a unit and uh, you choose, I think you choose South Central. Yeah, because of my uncle's pull, I could I could go anywhere I wanted in Los Angeles. There were at that time eighteen divisions. I think there's twenty one now. So in New York they call them precincts, and in L.A. they call them divisions. So I could request anyone I wanted. So I just requested the worst seventy seventh division, the most notorious. Uh, you know, that's where Compton and Watts is, and all that stuff. Early nineties, uh, the cartels, uh, right, figure out that there's a way to create more evil, and it's uh, c- producing something called crack cocaine. That's right. It's much easier to get people hooked, and uh, crack cocaine proliferates throughout the city, and uh, it's sort of this uh, this this ugly fuel that drives a lot of bad stuff. And you saw. You saw families broken, young men broken, um, lives destroyed, and you saw people die. Uh, In my arms, yeah. uh, Talk about some of the things that impacted you in those early days where you guys would, as they say, um, say uh, through the neighborhood and out east – Across, uh, uh, what's the phrase? Uh, Across, I texted you because I heard it on a documentary recently uh, where where you're you're in hot pursuit over the fences, through the neighborhoods, out east. Yeah. um, It's funny. I mean, I could tell a million stories, and I do, about that. I'll I'll give you one that's just sort of funny. So it's my second or third day out of the academy, and I had this this partner, Hugh O'Gara, uh, isn't it funny? He still remember names from way back when. Hugh O'Gara was my training officer. I mean, I'm literally right out of the academy. I was in Newton Division, shooting Newton uh, because yeah, of all all, the also not Disneyland. Yeah, no. And we were in the Jordan's Jordan Downs projects, and you know, I'm I'm literally just not really even a policeman. I've got a badge and a gun, but I'm like a college kid with a, you know, and, uh, they haven't taken the, 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 the safety band off the trigger. <laughs> right. Yeah. I still, I still have my one bullet in my, in my pocket. And so this, um, uh, blood comes walking in front of our police car, just walking right in. And Hugh had been shot twice in shootings already. He was a very, very senior guy, puts the car in park, reaches out and I, I wasn't too young to yet see the guy had a 25 auto sticking in his waistband walking right in front of our car. He was so high. He didn't realize he was walking in front of a police car. So he gets out of the car and, and you know, you're supposed to prone the guy out and all this, but he'd been through the war so much. He's reached out, flips the 25 auto out of the kid's waistband, throws it to me, grabs a kid and has a ha- guy handcuffed before he even knows what happened. And this is a tall kid. He's like six, three, very athletic. And so he hands him to me to put in the police car. So what I was supposed to do is put him in the back seat. And then I would get in the back seat with him and went to ride with him to the station because he just walked in front of a police car, you know, showing a gun. Well, I'm too young and stupid yet to understand how the world works. So I put him next to the car and then I go to open up the door. 
Well, what does he do? He takes off running. So he's now running through the projects handcuffed, but he's fast and he's athletic. So I got 30 pounds of gear on and he's handcuffed. So between us, it was a pretty even match. So we're running around the buildings and there's clotheslines everywhere. He's ducking under the clotheslines and pretty soon a crowd gathers because it's like four o'clock in the afternoon. There's a crowd gather cheering for him, running from the police and round and round. Here we go running, running. I look over and there's Hugh leaning up against the car, smoking a cigarette. <laughs> and he's like looking bored as I'm, you know, chasing this guy. Finally, the guy's wearing these baggy dicky pants, you know, that all of the course. gangsters wore. All of a sudden those pants just slip around his ankles. And when they slip around his ankles, of course, his feet stop and he trips and he goes face first right into a parking pylon. I mean, it wrecks his face. So I pick him up and he's got blood coming all down his face. And as I walk by Hugh very sheepishly, feeling like an idiot, he looks at me, throws a cigarette in the dirt and goes, well, I guess you won't do that again, will you, boy? <laughs> so we go to the station with this guy with this wrecked face. And so everyone comes along to find out what happened with this rookie. And, and uh, Hugh just looks at everybody and goes, yeah, he made the boot mad, you know. <laughs> we called rookies boots. Yeah. So everybody after that thought I was a, a, a bad dude and all all I did was it was an idiot and and chased this guy in a parking pile on. Plus you plus you had the name Harrison. Your your last no. name preceded you with your uncle. And my and uncle did. was the commanding officer of Newton Division, so yeah. So what I picture is this is kind of like that movie Colors. Uh, very much. That was a very realistic Your training movie. officer was Robert Duvall, and you, right. were, you were a young Sean Penn. <laughs> colors. 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 Um, colors. There's so many stories, and they're in your, a lot of them are in your book, uh, Rise of the Servant Kings. But um, really what I want to stay on track with is your, your heart for the Lord because we've established the fact that you knew Christ and you had a relationship with God. Uh, but you were a young man, and like so many young men, um, you had all that testosterone, all that energy. You probably had some wounds, some anger. Mm -hmm. But uh, you meet you meet Elliot, and you get married in 1990, don't you? So, so you've got a um, she's a cop's wife, mm. and you you've told a story about um, when you held uh, your first baby in your arms, and you realized you had an obligation to not just kick open every door and be the first one into every shooting gallery. Yeah, that was a you know when I was single and a policeman, I really enjoyed all the violence. I mean the. The, I don't know what it is about men who are programmed that way, but I was definitely that guy that if there was a guy with a shotgun behind the door, I wanted to be the first one through, you know. But, yeah, once I was married and whatnot, one day it hit me. You know, I, I don't – it's not just me anymore. Uh, if I get killed or terribly disabled, I, I now have subjected – somebody else to this. And that definitely changed the makeup and look of that. And I, I would encourage all everyone who's married, um, but especially men, since it's a men's ministry to think about the fact that when you're married, it ain't about you anymore. It's about your family. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, um, after a few years, uh, we had a situation It uh, actually happened, uh, out in, um, Oh, uh, it started in uh, 1990, 91. There was a guy on a balcony with a video camera and he sees uh, a, a, a traffic stop. 
and he videotapes from his apartment. It was either Glassell Park or Acton Village. And uh, Rodney King was leading uh, the LAPD on a high-speed chase because he was high, probably on uh, alcohol and drugs, just like we've P- talked about. PCP. He was on P- – Rodney King is leading LAPD on a high-speed chase, and someone captured it with a video camera, and it became the Rodney King trial. LAPD got put on trial. A year and a half later, after the trial, and there were some of the officers exonerated, uh, the city was at a tipping point. Can you talk about the tipping point that you were in the middle of? Man, there was so much to that. I'll try to make this answer short. Um, so the, the highway patrol, the California Highway Patrol, was on pursuit of Rodney King and the, on the freeways. And then when they got off into the city of Los Angeles, the LAPD took over. And... The LAPD, I mean, he was, Rodney King was beaten. He was on PCP. He was a very large man, six foot six, 245 pounds. He was tased. The taser didn't work. And then he went down and people saw the video. And um, the LAPD was found not guilty uh, the first time around. And it was because the way those officers acted was exactly within the department policy. You were supposed to hit somebody over and over and over again, stand back and tell them to put their hands behind their back. And if they didn't, you went back and did it again. And if you watch the video, you can see that's what's happening. But the city was already on a powder keg and it had to do with racial divisions between Koreans and blacks. And this never came out in the press because it's not as popular as white and black. But I was the first officer on scene right around that time um, what you had was a lot of Koreans coming into South Central Los Angeles and buying up businesses and then not hiring the local, the blacks there. Liquor stores. Liquor stores, convenience stores, yeah. which are liquor stores. And so there was tension going on. And then what happened was there was a 16-year-old girl. This was national news at the time. I think this was like 89 or 90. National news. She's, you can see in that grainy old black and white video from the cam, from the store, the, the Korean woman accuses the black girl of shoplifting. And you can see the girl come up and sort of there's a bit of an argument. And the girl turns around to walk away. And the woman takes a gun out and shoots her in the back of the head and kills her. You remember that? I distinctly remember this. I was the first guy there. And I remember the 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 owner's incense. Well, she shoplifted. And as we arrested her for murder and we sh- we searched the girl's body there, she had not shoplifted. So she was innocent. I'm, and uh, so the tensions were really, really high. That resulted in when the riots occurred, people saw these buildings burning. And or I remember people saying, why are they burning down their own buildings? Meaning the blacks who live there. They weren't. They were bur- burning down all the Korean-owned businesses. So that was the racial tension that went on. And we really watched the press. The LAPD and... The people of South Central Los Angeles were very close. We had a very good relationship. The LAPD is the best police department in the world. It was then, and I, I don't know if it still is, but I think it is. But the training, we were very good at our job, and we loved our community. And they were very close with us. We used to fight over who would work on Sunday afternoon because people would go to church, then they would come home and have barbecue, and they used to run out in the streets and grab our black and white and say, officers, come on back and have barbecue, and we would. The the logo on the side of the vehicle is to protect and to serve. And we really did. Yeah. So the press drove a narrative that wasn't true, that somehow, you know, the LAPD was racist and they beat up Rodney King for no reason. And the, the community was confused because that wasn't who we were. And we were confused and we were just cops and we didn't understand that we were in the middle of a giant 
game of politics and selling newspapers and I would yeah. say clicks, but there were no clicks in those days. It's really unfortunate. You look at what happened. You look at the violence. You look at Reginald Denny's face getting bashed in with a brick. Um, all those things that occurred. And it was all based on a lie from the press. All of it. And here we are now with fake news and radical media. Um, and that's why we do podcasts like this. So we yeah. can get out truth and have people tune in because um, Satan has control of most of the press. There is division being sown all the time, panic, fear, and we have get, we've got to get the truth out to people that Jesus is still in control, man. Gossip, innuendo, it goes back since the dawn of time, doesn't it? Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. And now, back to today's show. So let's fast forward, Ken. Uh, 1992, they burn the city down. You realize, gosh, um, and you've said something before, during the riots, uh, you were still going to defend what was right and wrong and uphold the law, uh, but you weren't going to expect any accolades or praise. Uh, you can't do that and expect... Uh, you can't be influenced by earthly judgment. All of us have to keep our eyes on Christ. We cannot, and, and, and in this day of Facebook and social media and whatnot, we have to be even so much more careful. I, you know, I was talking to a guy that you and I know, I won't say his name, very big selling author. And he was just lamenting some of the criticism he'd gotten over his books. And he read me some of them and they were terribly unfair. And, uh, I go, dude, you gotta, you gotta ignore all that. You gotta cut through that. You know, I mean, you're a best-selling author. And then finally I said, how many reviews, how many book reviews do you have? He said like 1200 and some, he knew the exact number. Yeah. How many reviews were really critical? Five. I'm like, dude, you're, you're, you're concentrating on those five. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's harder than it sounds because when people lambaste you and they're unfair and they lie about you, Jesus says, blessed are you right in Matthew chapter five. But it's hard when you pour your life into something and you have people who are just able now through social media just to throw out judgment and criticism and lies about you that are just terribly unfair. So you, you touched on, you resigned, you turned your badge in and you, uh, as a young man, you're probably in your mid twenties, you have a wife. You uh, are disillusioned uh, with the city, and you walked away from what I'm going to call the family business. Your dad, your uncle, Chief Gates, Newton, Rampart, um, the elite, so, the yeah. elite metropolitan division. You remember all those names, man? Yeah, Wilshire Boulevard, Slauson. Hey, Hoover, if you were lucky, you Vermont. got you maybe got reassigned to Devonshire Club Dev, man. Yeah. You went up there to play golf. So, 
How did you pivot? And a lot of men and women listening to this, but a lot of men, we are so tied up, Ken, in our our self-esteem and our sense of purposes, our career, how we make money, how we provide for our wives and our children. You're in your mid-20s. How did you give up the family business and get into this other line of work that became your career. So giving it up wasn't hard. It was finding what to do next because giving it up came from my uncle. Yeah. So he had just retired 32 years on one of the most famous helicopter ever was. And, uh, he, I mean, he fought the mafia in the late fifties all the way up. And he was in charge of Ronald Reagan at the 84 Olympics, his security. I mean, he was a legend. Um, but Gordon called me up to his house in San Clemente where he'd retired and he would sit out every day and listen to this new guy named Rush Limbaugh on the radio with his Walkman. He would sit up with a 44 Magnum in his fold-out chair, looking at the ocean, listening to Rush Limbaugh. And I remember him calling me and saying, Kenny, you need to come see me. And so I went and saw him and he said, I saw that you're, you're very decorated and you've been well-known around 77th station. Yeah, yeah, Gordon, yeah. And he said, you know, you're a fool. I tell us in the book. And he said, they are going to, after this Rodney King stuff, they're going to change this department and you're way too smart. I said, I always thought you'd be chief of police, but now because you're such a highly decorated officer, had been several officer involved shootings, they're going to destroy your career. So go do something else. So, you know, when the guy that I looked up to that much says that I, I took it uh, and there were some other things I was starting to get bitter and mean and angry. And I didn't like what I saw. And my wife being a godly and strong woman was a good mirror into my soul of maybe who I was becoming wasn't who I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I took her back to Oregon where her family was and some of my family was. And that was the tough part of now what? Now what do I do? And I would go to the Portland library every day cause before the internet and investigate careers. And I finally came up with this career commercial real estate appraisal, you know, and uh, finished up my English lit degree and, and got into that through some serious humbling of the Lord and, and started a new career by 1995. So fast forward, um, the next 10 years, uh, you're on a rocket ship. Yeah. You're just, you're, God bless you're, me. you're just, God put you on a upward trajectory Yeah, and you get, you get blessed with kids you get a career in commercial real estate. You climb the ranks until you're running a company with 22,000 employees. Um, yeah. So I built up a, a company, it's a supernatural blessing. And the stories I could tell them forever. But in 2006, I sold it to the second biggest commercial real estate firm in the world. And then I stayed on and ran um, Collier's International Valuation. And um, I was one of the main executives that ran all of Collier's uh, across the world, but I wasn't the CEO. I was one of the executives there, but I was the CEO of Global Valuation. And uh, so, yeah, then we went through the the Great Recession, which was fun as a commercial real estate firm. Boom. October of 08. <laughs> no one will forget that. I was in Australia, man, advising all the REITs down in Australia. I'll never forget. People looked like they were suicidal. I remember meeting with one REIT. And and for those of you that don't know, a REED is a real estate income trust. Very good. Yeah. It's basically like a mutual fund for real estate. This one guy met with me and his his stock value was $38 a share in September of 08. And in October of 08, it was 12 cents. $38 to 12 cents. Did you pull him in off the ledge? Yeah, basically, man. Yeah. It was a, a bloodbath. But God bless us supernaturally again. I tell this in the last chapter of my book where I prayed for humility and he gave it to me. But um, 
blessed us in an amazing way. We ended up with the contract with the FDIC to clean them up because they're going to close in all these banks. And based on an act of kindness I had done for a woman for no reason years earlier, I turned out and find out she was the head of the FDIC, this part of the banking world. And we ended up getting a monster contract. And uh, while everybody else was dying, we were incredibly profitable. It was really a pretty cool deal. Little known thing that Ken just dropped uh, based on a random act of kindness years earlier. Uh, it's just, pff, you reap what you sow, brother. That was a exactly what that was. Yeah. Reaped what we sowed. So in 2012, um, I retired because I was 45 and that's what you do. <laughs> the only people that retire at age 45 are pitchers named Gaylord Perry. I mean, come on, Ken. I seen this in your story. You wanted to hike and hang out and in the mountains and ski. That's all I wanted to do. So let's and just read. let's just keep unpacking this. This is sort of the Reader's Digest version, but it's interesting. You're 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 living out Ken's kingdom, yep. not God's. That's right. And you know, it was it was cloaked in a way that sounded really good. I mean, I was reading. Um, I read. Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, you know, Luther's Bondage of the Will, uh, Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, Augustine's City on a Hill. I mean, and then Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, you know, all these books that you always yeah. wish you could read, but you don't have the time. Well, I got to read them all, you know, and boy, was it, was it impactful on what I believed. However, in 2014, after two years of blissful hiking and skiing and reading and really it's coaching my son's football teams. Um, getting my daughter into Liberty University, uh, God met me in this very poignant way while I was praying in my closet. And, uh, and he said, Ken, call me by name. I did not put you through everything I did and teach you everything I did so you could ski and hike for the rest of your life. And I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And he said, are you willing to be as ambitious for my kingdom as you were for your kingdom? I always joke when I first tell that story, you know, and I said, you know, Lord, you're not supposed to talk to me because I'm a Baptist. <laughs> but um, I, he said, you know, when are you willing to be as ambitious? And, and then it came with a very stern warning. Be careful of your answer. It's going to cost you your life. And I really struggled, man. I, I and when people I want you to know, it's like a struggle of the soul. I don't want to give up my life. I'm happy, you know, and I've earn the right to be happy. Of course, you know, he gave me the blessings and the right and the ability to get where I was. But after two hours of real struggle with the Lord, I said, yeah, Lord, I'll, I'll, I'll give up everything, whatever you have for me. And then he said, I'll tell you what he have for you when you're ready. So after all that, after all that struggle, then he basically said, and you're not even good enough yet for the call I have for you. You have a lot more growing up you need to do. Now, see, I picture your life as a little bit like, you know, Jenga, like a series of, <laughs> of blocks. Yeah. You were meticulous. You're, you're very thoughtful and you're very well prepared. Um, but at this point where you're in the, the prayer closet, you're in your special prayer closet on your knees with the, the shoes and it's dark, you're, you're in a negotiation with God because it's like, man, I've gotten to a great point, but I've had to really make some difficult decisions. Oregon to LA, uh, Marines to Navy to LAPD, getting back to the public library in Portland. Um, these are all um, threading the eye of the needle moments. And you, so you get to this point and you're not, you're not ready to just concede. You're kind. You kind of. Are you willful with him? 
No, I was burned out on people, man. I was burned out on leadership. That was my thing. I don't want to lead anybody anymore. I don't want to be stabbed in the back, sued, fire anybody, uh, gossiped about. I just want to be left alone. You know, that was my thing. So tired of it all. So finally, finally, you have an answer for God. God God said, be careful. Be careful of your decision because it could cost you your life. Uh, was it a, was it a, was it a sort of clouds open or was it more subtle? It was scary. I mean, that's the thing, you know, people ask me all the time why I've been able to do so many things, pick up and move to Colorado, uh, the investments I've made, the the properties I've developed and on and on and all the stuff we've talked about. And I realize I've always just been devoid of fear. I've just never really been fearful. Um, I just go into whatever, but that moment. It was like, what do you have for me, Lord? I mean, am I going to be uh, uh, in the Swangali tribe in Africa? What, is, what does give up my life mean? And at that point, he was like, I don't get negotiated with. You give up your life, and I'll tell you what I have for you when I'm ready. Actually, when you're ready. And that was, the, the for, for me, I think, one of the very few times in my life I've ever been scared. Like, I, this is pretty good, man. Yeah. I got money. I got great kids, a beautiful wife. So, 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 so big Ken Harrison is scared after kicking open all those doors and chasing all those bad guys, tackling them to the ground, not knowing this moment scared you. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it is a very brief story. God puts us through pain to prepare us for the next thing. And I went through something when I was 28 years old, I was in an accident. Um, so I'm, I've left the LAPD and I get hit and I'm in the emergency room. And I got hit by a jet ski, by a drunk guy on a jet ski. And I'd broken all the ribs on the right side of my body. And I got into the emergency room and the doctor said, uh, you have ruptured your liver. And so if you've ruptured more than 40% of your liver, you're going to die. If it's less than 40%, we're going to life light you out to a trauma center and we're going to cut it out and it'll regrow. That was what he said. And I said, well, if I'm going to die, what does that mean? He said, your body will poison itself in the next five hours. So, um, I laid there on this gurney for five hours or excuse me for an hour thinking in my, is my body poisoning itself to death at that moment for that hour I spent thinking I may be before the judgment throne of Christ in in an hour. And he's going to ask me, what did you do with what I gave you? Now I'd never been taught that theology. Your whole life being played out in that hour. So me really laying on a gurney, you know, risking your life, kicking indoors and facing gunfighter is one thing. Laying on a gurney, thinking about it for an hour with all the adrenaline running through you is different. And I remember thinking, I will never be in this position again where I'm wondering, how is my judgment going to go? I want to give my life to Christ. Fast forward, that pain prepared me for that prayer in the closet where God said, are you willing to die to everything? Because though I didn't want to, I was remembering that moment 20 years earlier of, eh, I want to make sure you that You connected when I get the there, dots of the gurney moment to the on my knees in the dark, not knowing. That's amazing, Ken. Well, um, as, as we wrap up, um, we're going to keep unpacking your story because it's got so many chapters. And I believe God has more chapters to write. So we're going we're gonna to continue to root for you. Um, and in uh, a coming episode, we're going to get into how you got involved with Waterstone because Waterstone is our sponsor here. Yeah. And uh, that, is, that, that is a story that deserves to be told, the uh, incredible kingdom work that Waterstone does because um, 
things got really good for you after that conversation with God, and uh, you started to get into some purpose-driven work. Well, thanks for your time, and thanks for walking us through your past. Thanks for listening to On the Edge Podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app. <laughs>